UFO Radio Show. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have with me the one and only Senior Jason McClellan. Well, we're the I'm the only one that we know about. There could be others. Well, you're the only you, unless there's clones. There certainly could be. Someone could have abducted your um, DNA in the middle of the night and cloned you in some other planet. Oh, I think there's plenty of my DNA out there. Oh, my goodness. Spreading your DNA around, are you? Let's not get into that this episode. We'll save that for later. All right. Well, we have a great show today because we have on Nick Pope. We're lucky enough to get him. He's extremely busy doing interviews all over the place because the UK has released their final batch of UFO finals, files. And, and by final, I mean this is it. They're out of the UFO business. They're not going to release anything more. Allegedly, this is everything they got on UFOs. And uh, so this is probably, you know, well, likely it's not. I was going to say it's Nick's last hurrah, but not really because there'll still be sightings out there which uh, he'll be asked to speak to because he worked for the UFO desk from 1991 to 94. So we talk about you know, if this is a good decision, why they're doing it. Um, I, I actually talk about some of my frustrations with the whole situation. And so uh, we'll be talking about that. Really interesting stuff. And there are some good sightings in these files. But I don't know about you, Jason, but I was surprised at how much they talk about ufologists. It is interesting and surprising. And we've We've heard this certainly before from Nick, and uh, in response to some of the, the previously released files where this started to come out, showing that, uh, yeah, they did have an interest in ufologists. So that's kind of fascinating. Well, and kind of a bad attitude, I thought. You yeah, know, oh, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, like us versus them type of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, anybody who is interested in UFOs is a ufologist. And so mm-hmm. this group of people is a group of people that doesn't have to be taken serious. And, uh, I was a little, as I, I said, you know, how the British say it, frustrated by that. Yeah, and I think that's completely founded. Yeah, so we'll we'll see what Nick has to say about that as well. So before we get into our interview, however, Jason and I like to talk about our favorite story from the week. And yeah, Jason, we do. What would be yours? Well, let's see. You know, I think I want to talk about. The story about a, a UFO photo that came out last week. Um, no. This photo was allegedly right. taken by a uh, a military person, uh, a major in the Indian Army, and this guy was out on a beach with his wife in India, and he was testing out his new cell phone, playing around with the camera and stuff, and taking a bunch of pictures. And then when he was going back through reviewing the photos, he 
shouted out with excitement because he saw a UFO in one of his photos and showed his wife. And her response, she tells the whole story to the New Indian Express, said, you know, at first I didn't believe him. I thought he was playing a prank on me. But the guy continued, continued to say that, uh, you know, it was serious and everything. So the couple thought it would be good to send the photo to the paper and go to the press and all this stuff. So after looking at the photo, Alejandro, it is frustrating, as you said earlier, but uh, this is something we're seeing more and more of, and again, this is an example of somebody pulling a prank on everybody and using a cell phone application that inserts a UFO into any photo, whether it's a pre-existing photo on your phone or one you just took. And we're seeing a lot of this, and there are so many applications who are both iPhones and, and phones using the Android operating system, that make it very easy for anybody to insert a UFO into a photo. And these are making so many headlines, it's surprising. And even people using the same UFO image that we've seen in the headlines so many times from these hoax photos. And this is a problem that isn't going to slow down. It's just going to get worse. People keep perpetuating this because, as we see, the media eats it up. They're very easy to fall for it and publish it and go with it. And it's frustrating. Yeah, I'm a, I guess I was a little surprised you chose this because it's yet again another App360 photo, which we've seen tons of recently, and it's just once again another App360 one. But I guess, like you said, it you know it is surprising how. But then we've talked about this because we've had so many of these that the media picks it up and runs with these. Well, this this story is also I, I don't know. There's another other element to it in that. The person who took the photo is in the Indian Army, which is kind of surprising. I don't, I don't know why it is, but I would like to think that somebody, a major in the Indian Army, would have a little more, uh, I don't know, ethics, I guess, than to try to pull this over on somebody, especially his wife. And you know, who knows if his wife is really in this with him or if she really is being fooled by her husband and he's he's uh, pulling a prank on her. But uh, it is kind of surprising. It's surprising that media outlets around the world chose to feature this story and show the photo when time and time again we keep seeing the same object in these photos and people using these camera applications to fool people. Yeah, none of that surprises me at all because the media, I think, just isn't savvy to it and uh a major in the Indian Army, that doesn't surprise me. However, it does, I think you're right in that uh, it looks for a better headline, and that's probably why this story is getting so much um, play, because it is an Army major uh, in the Indian Army. So I think people would think that, like like you said, that it would be a little more uh, careful or credible, but unfortunately... He's obviously playing a trick, or I almost, you know, I at first I was thinking because we had so many of these, is saying that they didn't do it, they didn't take the picture, if they're accidentally doing it. But I, you know, from looking at the app, it's it's difficult to do it on accident. Right. So, um, yeah, it looks like really, when it comes down to it, with all of these, they're somebody trying to prank somebody. Um, I don't know if this guy was trying to prank the media in this case, but uh, certainly in that case that we had a few weeks ago where we notified 
the media source and they kind of got embarrassed about it and confronted the guy who took the picture, you know, that was one where I think that this guy was trying to trick the media. But uh, Right. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, these are just prime examples of, you know, I think it's a, a good good timing here to talk about this because, you know, it's something that the MOD points out with their UFO desk and how they just got frustrated and, and uh, tired of dealing with all the garbage uh, sightings that come in that, you know, clutter everything up and take time and resources away from looking at the photos and videos and sightings that deserve more attention and deserve to be researched where, you know, you're getting all of these people sending in this this crap that just clutters the entire field of research. And you and I know this very well because we get stuff like this every single day where there's just a lot of garbage photos of people trying to be funny and it really gets in the way of, of researching the good cases. Yeah, and I we've been seeing these practically on an every other week basis, so I'm sure we're going to continue to see them all probably oh, from absolutely. I mean, eternity. That's, that's guaranteed. And the more we see these in the in the media, the more they get pointed out as being from camera apps and other people playing pranks, and that's where the whole phenomenon really gets watered down, and then people just start assuming, oh, yeah, every photo is fake, and it, it takes away from the credible sightings. Right. So it frustrates me, Alejandro. Yeah. All right, but I guess it's just technology, and it's a natural progression of things. It is, and I love technology, so what are you going to do? I don't know. All right, well, let's move on to your story, Alejandro. What was your favorite story of the week? Yeah, my story is the uh, protesters in Brazil, and, you know, we could see what your thoughts are, too, because this has gotten a a lot of play as well. Oh, yeah. Um, And that, you know, someone... One of the protesters took a video, very poor resolution, of a little light flying around in the sky above them. And if you're not aware, you probably are. Some people might not be. There have been hundreds of thousands of people protesting in Brazil over all kinds of different things. Um, And I guess I, I completely don't understand. I mean... It's it's not like one major thing. They're just kind of protesting all kinds of little things they're upset with the government about. But in this case, on June 17th in Sao Paulo, there were an estimated 200 and around 250,000 people in the street. So hordes and hordes of people. And uh, in the middle of this crowd, someone took this video and then put it on YouTube. And people were pretty fascinated. And uh, then TV Holia, at the same time, Full, yeah, I think they're called, had a video online uh, that they took with a drone. And so you could see that this camera's cruising around really fast, back and forth, above these crowds, and they had lots of videos. So this drone was certainly in the same vicinity as this lit object that this guy took a video of. Some people debate whether or not it is the same thing. I personally am pretty convinced they are the same, um, but uh, the debate rages on. Yeah, and I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that what we see in that video is this TV station's drone capturing footage of the protesters. Yeah, we can't be sure 100%, but also in that video of the UFO, we don't see 
the drone or you know another object in the sky when clearly there was an object in the sky at that time taking video of the protesters. So mm-hmm. being that we have a video showing an object in the sky and we have video from an object in the sky, put two and two together. Right, and this has happened before in in Moscow a couple of years ago. Right, pretty much same situation. Guy video tapes a drone, uh, takes a picture, and uh, it turns into a UFO thing. And then later, it turns out it was a drone by uh, another news organization. Right. Yeah, you're going to see more and more drones. They're great for news capturing and getting these these aerial shots. So. And the note that these are news organizations, I think, is important because uh, a lot of times people assume that it's only the military. The but government act- is watching us. Yeah, but it's actually more and more uh, news organizations right. um, and police that are using these, but especially uh, in the UK at least, but especially news organizations because you, you could see it, they capture some incredible video, some great video. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I think soon we'll have to get an Open Minds drone. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you, Big J. Did you have anything more to say about the drone in Brazil? I don't think so, sir. I think that's it for me. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. And I am excited to talk to Nick, so let's go ahead and talk to him. Well, it is wonderful to be speaking to Nick Pope again. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. So I'm sure you are super busy. Yes. It's been a hectic week What with the release of the last batch of Ministry of Defense UFO files. I was working, of course, on uh, the run-up to the story, effectively pitching it to the media and indeed writing features myself. And, of course, once the story broke and once uh, the media embargo was listed, um, my phone was ringing off the hook. Right. Now, we uh, write a lot about you know different UFO stories and the big UFO stories hitting the news. And I'm wondering... If there seemed to be a ramp up out there, there was a big sighting in Scotland, one in Ireland, a couple outside of uh, London um, in the last couple of weeks. Did how how much prior did the news have that these files were coming out? And do you think those were independent or them kind of getting ready? Well, I've known for months, uh, right down to the exact date when this was all going to be made public. And because, of course, I've, I've been very much the public face of this in terms of, of the media. Um, but most of the rest of the media, if they knew it was coming, didn't know the exact date until two days before when an embargoed press release was sent out, giving them a, a brief summary of the story and warning them strictly that uh, the story was under embargo and it could not be mentioned until uh, Friday, June 21st. So in a sense, the other stories that you mentioned, that really was just coincidence. And uh, it's an interesting coincidence, but I don't see anything suspicious or, or planned about it. It is just the fact that we have had, as you say, two or three quite interesting and spectacular UFO sightings, which had happened to hit the media in the week or so before this this Ministry of Defense story hit. Right. So we'll get into those a little more later then, I guess, because we'll start off with in that, I guess, these files were similar to the last ones, and and we spoke about this especially um, fairly recently because, of course, in December 2009, uh, 
the UK decided not to take uh, UFO reports anymore. Um, but this file kind of outlines that history on and some of the background and discussions on why they closed those files. <clears throat> and reading it was a little bit frustrating uh, and curious to me. So, for instance, uh, they were really, and it's funny that they paid so much attention to ufologists because they were really kind of discussing about how ufologists would feel and how would they, they take the closing. Um, but they kind of pushed off. They never seemed to really have a concern for any ufologist concerned. No, it, it's a difficult situation. I, I don't want to be too critical of my former employers, but one can clearly see from these newly released documents that there is um, a defensiveness about the Ministry of Defense. Um, if you'll excuse the pun, and, <laughs> and I think uh, I think they were clearly overly defensive about this. And I, I think part of it is that the Freedom of Information Act is still, I think, a, a real corporate culture change for the Ministry of Defence. I mean, this was it is an inherently secretive organisation. A large proportion of of which involves highly classified uh, operational business, whether it's Afghanistan or whether it's uh, domestic defense and security. Um, and for this organization to suddenly find itself in this totally new environment was a culture shock at every level. And the idea that uh, you can't even write a, a, a classified email to a colleague saying, hey, what do you think about this, without it being at least considered for FOI. And um, to, to give a, an example, I mean, once the Freedom of Information Act came fully into force, I think some people were, I, I won't say breaking the law, but certainly thinking about workarounds in terms of, well, let's, let's be careful where the paper trail leads here. And uh, maybe let, let's not commit things to paper unless we have to. Let's, uh, let's go and uh, have, a, have a little chat about this. So, so yes, to go back to your question, it, it's a frustrating and confusing mixture of an organization that is, is, as it were, having to adapt to this new environment, this new regime, and isn't actually doing it very well. Right, and I think, well, it harkens back to a couple of weeks ago I had Leslie Kane on, and she's doing a working on a conference that they're going to have in a couple of weeks, uh, just next weekend actually, in, in North Carolina, and they're bringing together some of the people from other countries that do have official um, UFO information, uh, investigation desks, such as this one in the UK that you worked for. And uh, I guess one of the conversations we had was handling the PR and there are always going to be criticisms for any section of the government, but it seems like for uh, whatever reason, they felt that this was kind of leaving themselves especially open to criticism and uh, just kind of self-conscious about that. Yes. The fundamental problem here is that no government or air force can countenance a situation where they are perceived, even if that's not the reality, it's perception. Um, 
a situation where you have apparently lost control of your own airspace, or at the very least, there are from time to time things in your airspace that you're not able to identify, particularly if they are tracked on radar, seen by pilots, uh, witnessed to perform speeds and maneuvers that we can't match. That's not a that's not a place a government or an air force likes to be in, and and therefore you you hit essentially denial. And dare I say that on the UFO issue, the Ministry of Defence effectively started to believe its own publicity on this. And I know that might sound amusing, but let me explain. For decades, as you know, the UK government's public position on UFOs was was this little carefully crafted soundbite that it was of no defence significance or sometimes no defence interest. And this line was pushed so aggressively and so frequently, uh, not just with the public, with the UFO community when they wrote in, but with Parliament when this subject was raised and with the media, that effectively this mantra became almost believed not just by the people it was trotted out for, but by those who were trotting it out in the first place. Particularly if in the later years of the UFO project, meaningful investigations were few and far between. And you were dealing with, with an organization which, unlike in my time, I, mean, I was lucky enough to do this job before FOI. Post-FOI, the whole configuration of the UFO project changed and it did become much less of an investigative uh, researching team and much more of a responsive team in terms of public correspondence and Freedom of Information Act requests. And you were dealing effectively with people who didn't have the deep specialist knowledge that those of us involved in this a few years ago, and certainly before FOI, had. Mm -hmm. Now, to understand the makeup of this desk and kind of its goals, what was, like, when you were to, to, to do this, what was your, what did they ask you to do? What was your main focus supposed to be? To make a complex answer very simple, the fundamental reason for having a UFO project was to determine if any UFO sightings constituted a potential threat to the defense of the United Kingdom. That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. in, in investigating the sightings in, in a way so as you could make that assessment, the secondary mission, as it were, was to look for anything of, of more general defense interest. And that has been interpreted a number of ways by those of us involved with this over the years, but um, it, it has to do with researching the phenomenon to see if it can teach you anything about um, propulsion systems, energy sources, and I'm afraid to say, never a popular point with particularly the new age people in the UFO community, but, but at the heart of a lot of this is the question, can any of this be weaponized, whatever this turns out to be? And, and by the way, we're not in any sense conclusion-led here. We took no definitive view on the true nature of the UFO phenomenon. Our, our question was, look, whatever it turns out to be, Russian or Martian, if, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> uh, we want to know if there's a threat and we want to know if there's something we can learn from it. So that, that was basically the mission, the mm. terms of reference. Right. And actually, 
that's not a million miles away from the old Project Bluebird mm-hmm. in terms of reference either. And indeed, the investigative methodology isn't wasn't too far away either. Which now, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, a- absolutely. Now, to give you a sense of how that actually translated, I mean, in what what the UFO project actually looked like. I mean, imagine most of the time just effectively a two-person team at the core of it, uh, the subject matter expert and somebody providing administrative support, but a, a small team with an incredible reach in terms of anything we wanted in, in relation to resources or expertise within reason we could get. And, and people would say often, what was the cost of, of this? And the answer is surprisingly little because all the resources you need are already there. For example, you tap into the whole air defense network, the radar system, and you ask as a big part of any UFO investigation, what if anything was tracked on the radar. And of course, those radar systems are already there. They're not set up specifically for UFO research. So all the things like uh, radar, it's already there. If you have a photo or a video that you need, the imagery analysis expertise, both in terms of the, the analysts themselves, the people, and the equipment, that's already there, uh, particularly in the intelligence community, the satellite imagery uh, people and, and uh, photographic interpretation. That's all there. Um, and not just internal resources, but external resources and expertise. We could and did reach out to the Royal Greenwich Observatory to ascertain whether there was an astronomical explanation to any of these UFO sightings. We could reach out um, to, well, pretty much anyone we, we wanted to. The Civil Aviation Authority, which is the UK's equivalent of the US FAA. Um, there is, of course, the whole commercial airline radar network to tap into. And, of course, critically, the, the whole business of commercial airline pilots who themselves see UFOs. So it would seem that, I mean, what you were doing is a worthwhile thing, especially, uh, like, for instance, a, a main uh, ish reason they, they t- talked about closing the desk was the resources that were misspent. But it doesn't take very much resources, and it seems worthwhile to be looking at these things. Yes, indeed. I mean, I, I think um, I, I think that whole business of, of saying it was a resource issue was a bit of spin. In that particular time period, the, the whole Ministry of Defense had to find sweeping defense cuts. Mm-hmm. And each area, each top-level budget area, was basically given targets. And it was told to look at every single post. And if you could cut the post, or if you could bundle up the duties with with another post, uh, then you were not only encouraged to do so, but all sorts of things like annual performance bonuses were based on the extent to which this mission could be completed. So there was a built-in incentive for any manager who managed to cut a post. And I think it was very easy, and I go back to this point, that MOD ended up believing its own publicity and buying into its own no-defense-significant soundbite. It was very easy to construct a case and say, look, when we've got people in Afghanistan and Iraq, should we really be spending money looking into UFOs? And if you put it like that, 
it's a compelling argument. Mm. Now, if you actually look at the logic of this and say, as I've explained, really there are very few, if any, additional cash costs in this, and, and for all sorts of reasons, it's a very sensible thing to look at UFOs, then the decision looks less uh, sound. And, and I believe the decision is completely unsound. Even in a situation where you think 99% of your business is Chinese lanterns, this is something which is effectively throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a soundbite I often use, but it's an important one. The believers only have to be right once on this. And far better, I think, uh, to introduce a proper filter mechanism to quickly strip out these these Chinese lanterns, the fire lanterns, and all the other cases that you can quickly explain, rather than pull the plug on the whole UFO project. Instead of doing that, just strip out the, the fire lanterns and very quickly focus in on the sightings from military personnel, from police officers, from pilots, the, the ones where you've got radar evidence and the ones where you've got photos and videos. That's probably less than 5% of the total, but that's where you should be looking. That, that's not to say that no good data can ever come from the public, but if you've got to make some hard choices, then then that's where you should be looking. Mm-hmm. Now, they're careful to speak about the this angle of uh, it being a uh, issue that has little to add to the defense um the resources being misspent but it also but it seems like in the verbiage and because they had a lot of concern about the PR aspect that the PR difficulties seems to be a, a maybe even a bigger motive uh to closing the whole desk Yes, I think sometimes when you're in an organization, when you feel a little bit under siege from the media and the public, it is easy to, uh, uh, well, I I don't want to say roll over, but it's easy to be, as I mentioned before, overly defensive about this and lack perhaps the decisiveness and the bullishness to say, you know what, I'll take the criticism. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's what people should have done. But instead... They took the easy answer out and said, yes, maybe it would be good to get rid of this. And um, perhaps as we'll go on to discuss, all that's really happened is that it's, it's perhaps driven it underground, in a sense, and taken it away from public scrutiny. Because you know, just as UFO sightings haven't magically stopped just because the British government stopped investigating them, um, actually, if truth be known, if, if a pilot has a near miss with a UFO, someone is going to still be looking at that, as indeed these media stories in the last couple of weeks proved quite conclusively. Right, quite a bit of those. Um, And I guess getting into that, I mean, it's just that they, that's why it it seemed to be uh, closing the door PR publicly to UFOs. Um, And as you said, you know, they're encouraged to um, bung, bundle those responsibilities up with another group, which would have made complete sense if they said, well, this isn't going to have its own desk, but it's going to be part of another group's, um, you know, oversight. Uh, but they didn't do that. They just, and that's, I guess, what what's also a bit startling because they say they're going to be criticized possibly about uh, not meeting their commitments. Um, and they send out messages to the other organizations um, saying don't send us UFO reports anymore. We don't want to see them. 
don't send them here. Um, which just is, is a little bit mind-boggling because it seems like that would be important intelligence they would want to see, even in the case that, which I'm sure they feel these things could be mundane, but they still seem to be things that you want to take a look at. Yes, indeed. And one can only hope that people involved in this and receiving reports are still able to make a good judgment call and say, you know what, even if we still, even if we no longer have a, a formal UFO project, here's something that I think someone needs to know about. Mm-hmm. And I, the Ministry of Defense, the Royal Air Force, the Defense Intelligence staff, uh, they're good people in those organizations who will, generally speaking, I think, make good decisions on that. And th- that gives me some confidence because I, I think that even if in a sense it's, it's disappointing for the UFO community, the media and the public, I don't think we need worry that our skies are left undefended. I mean, as I say, if a radar operator tracks something, assesses it as a solid contact and can't identify it, they're not going to suddenly forget about it just because the UFO project's been terminated. No, they they will kick it up the chain of command and say, hey, boss, what do you think about this? It's mm-hmm. just they'll bend over backwards to ensure that they don't use the phrase UFO mm. to avoid contradicting the department's own line that we no longer investigate these things and, critically, to avoid creating a, a Freedom of Information Act liability. One of the most interesting documents in this newly released batch, the significance of which seems to have been completely missed by the media, is this line that says, after we terminate the UFO project, when we receive future material, we will either send it back or put it through the shredder. And it it goes on to admit, quite openly, to avoid creating a future Freedom of Information Act liability. Wow. Now, the other other point is, and it's a related point, is that I know, for example, that pilots, when they see these things, are now very careful, generally speaking, to use phrases like unusual aircraft and unconventional helicopter. Again, it avoids contradicting the public line that we no longer look at this, and it avoids if somebody puts in an FOI request and says, please send me any UFO reports. It it enables people to say, well, we don't have any. If people people say, how many times have pilots reported unusual or unconventional aircraft or something, some similar wording, that's a very different and perhaps smarter question these days. Right. It seems like, and this was a discussion, you know, um, Leslie and I had gotten into this, and from I'm really excited about this conference next week. I'm going to be going there. And uh, But by looking at the models from other countries, I mean, I feel, and I think you do as well, that a UFO desk is important. But one of the things, and of course in France and, and in Chile, they're doing that successfully. Uh, and I think what we learned from this is, uh, and I think this would be the same issue in the United States, is that there certainly is a large PR aspect to this, that PR is going to need to be managed um, in some fashion and uh, criticism is going to have to be taken and not ran away from. And if you look in corporations, they handle this all the time. Of course, they take bad criticism, but they have 
um, strategies to deal with that. And when it comes to UFOs, you take criticism. We take criticism just by being in the, this field and, and there being a variety of opinions. It, it, it's too bad they, they – it seems like a group going forward, if a group is created, because I really would love to see one in, in the United States, it's going to have to – actively tackle this issue and understand it's going to be an issue. Yes. I, I don't think there's any getting away from the fact that public relations, media management, whatever phrase you want to use, is, is a large part now of the business of any government department, corporation, or, or any, any public entity. That said, I think, as I said before, there, there is sometimes a tendency to be over-sensitive and over-defensive mm -hmm. about this, and then you end up with the tail wagging the dog, because we mustn't forget in all of this that while public relations is important, you know, the, the, the real priority must, must always be the mission. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, you know, uh, my old head of division in uh, defense security was a former uh, military colonel, and he always used to say, you know, all this touchy-feely stuff is good, but uh, the, the, you know, it's the mission imperative, the organizational needs, the business needs of the organization, the mission imperative, that's, that's what you've, you've got to concentrate on. And he was right. right. So, yes, it's important, but uh, don't let it, it, you know, be the overriding factor here. Well, I think that's great because a lot of the corporate strategies are just that, to restate here's our mission um, and let people say what they will, and but focusing on the mission, which is usually a product that yes. people appreciate. Yes, and I, I think, in a sense, the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. Mm -hmm. I, I think when you look at uh, DOD or, or when you look at um, the UK Ministry of Defense, you you see now this post FOI open government world, uh, which of course is a good thing, but you know it, it it's gone too far. I don't, I don't want to to say it's all political correctness, though that's a part of it too. But um, you know the emphasis should always be on the mission, operations, the front line, um, it, the teeth, not the tail, as, right. as they say. Well, and just taking you as an example, I mean, you're someone who I think in this field is really good at this, too. There are a lot of people in this field who, because we all take, you know, a lot of criticism for our views, um, because there are so many different views out there, and people passionately hold their different perspectives. Um, but, and while other ufologists sometimes break under that pressure, and, you know, you see on social media or in these interviews like, like this that uh, they kind of vent and let off some steam. But you never, I've never once seen you uh, really let that get to you. Well, I think a couple of things. Firstly, I did, when I was at the Ministry of Defense, get extensive media training. So I, you know, as with most things in life, practice, training, um, is is really the the key? What what is the phrase? Train hard, fight easy. <laughs> um, so that's a part of it. The the other thing is it's just it's just a product I think of of who I am. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's my particular personality. I see no need to uh, get involved in flame wars with people. I 
I see no need to uh, stoop down to the level. I mean, my goodness, um, you know, when I ever dip into the, uh, the blogosphere and see the things people are writing about me, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely staggering. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps perhaps I I should uh, refrain from doing it, but on the rare occasion that I do, I mean, my goodness, I mean, I you know, uh, I was taught up not. To, I was brought up not to use such language, but uh, right. yeah, I, I just think, well, you know what? If if people have that opinion, um, if people want to accuse me of being part of the cover-up, being disinformation, et cetera, et cetera, and and of course I know that I've faced. I mean, I've done over the course of this five-year program to declassify and release the MOD UFO files. I've probably done several hundred, if not a thousand plus television, radio, newspaper, and magazine interviews. And uh, I know that I've been criticized for that. And because I'm the public face of it, I've been vilified, oddly, by the skeptics and the believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the believers say that this is either disinformation or, or you know, all the good stuff's being held back. The skeptics say that I'm going far too far. And, and when I when I say, no, no, some of this is genuinely interesting and unexplained, they want me to say it's it's all nonsense. So I'm, I'm not pleasing anyone. But you know what? I'm not in the business. I'm not saying this to be popular. If I wanted to be popular, I'm sure I could say all sorts of things that I know people want to hear. But that's not the way I roll. I, I call <laughs> it how I see it. And if I upset, as I do, believers, skeptics, and conspiracy theorists all, all rolled into one, then sorry, so be it. Well, and I agree with you 100% because I know I hear these things, you know, when I have you on, and I think it's absolutely ridiculous. But it comes back to, I guess, staying mission-focused, which is what you do, and it works because uh, you're also one of the more popular people. People are asking you back for interviews, so it's also working in that um, it uh, it's not hurting you by staying focused. It, it's actually a working media-wise as well. Well, yes. I mean, uh, I was joking the other day that uh, I should change my Facebook status to uh, off-filming in, in L.A. <laughs> 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 and, uh, yes, it, uh, it does seem to be quite uh, hectic. And and I suppose because I've done this not as a private interest but as a, a government job, and, and I mean that as no disrespect to those who do do this as a private interest or as a result of an experience, but but inevitably for the media, the fact that I've done this from the inside uh, means that they do want to speak to me quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you're talking about things changing a bit with FOIA um, at the, and how the government works from when you were at the UFO desk. So I'm wondering if that kind of changes, uh, if you think, for instance, I'm thinking of Cosford. This is a case in 1993 that you investigated a great case that you concluded was a genuine unknown. Uh, maybe if we could talk about that case and and if you think that uh, you would have done things any differently or, or in today's world versus yesterday's world. Yes. I mean, the Cosford incident was one of the UK's most spectacular UFO encounters, a series of probably several hundred sightings over a period of six hours on March 30th and March 31st, 1993. So I led the investigation 
on, on this. Uh, my time on the UFO project was 91 to 94. Lots of sightings from police officers, lots of sightings from military personnel, two Air Force bases directly overflown by a huge triangular-shaped craft, uh, flat triangle, lights at each of the, the three edges on the underside, and uh, a fourth but fainter and bigger light in, in pretty much the middle of this thing. Again, on, on the underside, of course, people are seeing this um, from directly below. This thing was witnessed by one of the Air Force personnel who saw this flying over RAF Shawbury, in fact, and he said that this thing flew slowly towards the base, perhaps 200 feet above the ground, maybe 30, 40 miles an hour, he said, in size, this thing was midway between a C-130 transport aircraft and a Boeing 747. And he said that suddenly, uh, by the way, there was a low-frequency humming sound coming from the craft and a pencil-thin beam of light flaring down that was tracking from side to side. And he said suddenly the light flicked off and this thing shot away to the horizon many times faster than a military jet. This was a man with eight years' experience in the Air Force. He saw military helicopters, aircraft, on an almost daily basis. And he said to me, his voice still shaking the following morning when I interviewed him, you know, this was like nothing I'd seen in my eight years in the Air Force. And I subsequently found another witness uh, by the name of Darren Perks. He was a military cadet at the time, I think. Uh, he subsequently went on to have a military career. He's now out of the service. He said that uh, he looked upwards. He saw this faint hum. He heard a faint hum, looked upwards, for a moment didn't see anything and thought that it was cloudy. The reason it was, he thought it was cloudy, and maybe there was a storm coming or something, is he said that the stars seemed to be going out one by one. And then suddenly he realized that this wasn't cloud. This was, this was a huge black triangle so huge that as he looked up at the thing as I say the, the stars were appearing to just wink out one by one and you know we we launched a full investigation a report went up to the assistant chief of the air staff one of the UK's most senior military officers we drew a complete blank uh, the case remains unexplained to this day now the second part of your question is very interesting. You asked how I would have handled it different post-FOI. And that is difficult, if not impossible, to answer because it's a hypothetical. But I'm slightly ashamed to admit I might have been a little bit more cautious about what I would have put down on paper. Mm -hmm. And on that, on that particular investigation, the MOD's case file probably runs to over 100 pages. I suspect that if I had half an eye on the public, the media, the UFO community, I, I would have been more circumspect and more cautious on that. And I'm not, I'm not proud to give that answer because that's not the answer we're supposed to give mm -hmm. to the government. Uh, but I'm, I'm just trying to be truthful. And I, I suspect I would not have generated quite so much paperwork. And don't forget, when I was doing this job, not only did we not have a Freedom of Information Act in the United Kingdom, but it, it wasn't even really a, a debating issue for anyone. 
it was only in the run-up to the 97 election, which brought Tony Blair into power, that it began to be spoken about. And it, how ironic that it was the Blair government that brought in the Freedom hmm. of Information Act, enacted, I mean, Tony Blair and, and his new Labour government were elected into power in 1997. A Freedom of Information Act was one of their manifesto commitments. The legislation was enacted in 2000, and it came fully into force across all government departments and public bodies in 2005. Tony Blair, ironically, now describes it, looking back, as his biggest mistake. And, and I think when, when you look at issues like the Iraq inquiry, you can perhaps see why he's been um, you know, a victim of his, his own success there. But that's another story. But, uh, I, mean, I, I think I saw a quote where he said something similar to that. Yes, yes, he did. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, the, the point is, I suppose, in relation to our discussion, that when I was do, working on the UFO project uh, from 91 to 94, this was a complete non-issue for me. And if I thought about anything I wrote being made public at all, I guess I would have looked at the Public Record Act and I would have said, well, in 30 years' time, this all might come out. Mm-hmm. But hey, I'll, I'll, I'll be retired. And, you know, it's not an issue. So that's why earlier in our interview, I described the post-FOI world as a right. complete culture change and indeed culture shock for those of us who joined the ministry, uh, say, in, in the 80s and the 90s. Right, yeah. And I, I appreciate your honesty because... Um, that's what I had suspected because, of course, like you said, this case is pretty phenomenal. I think uh, you even said it was the best case you got to investigate in your years at the desk. And there's striking um, conclusions, uh, the quotes in there from, like, your air chief of staff. Um, and also you got some striking uh, responses from the Americans when you asked them about uh, if these were triangles or theirs. Well, indeed, we had been for many years having a debate about whether secret prototype spy planes and drones uh, and, and various code words and names have been banded around Aurora, TR-3B, etc., etc. Um, we were having this debate about whether any UFO sightings could be people seeing these, these secret spy planes and drones, the next generation, as it were, things that you won't see unveiled for 10, 15 years. And we asked the Americans, that uh, could any of these things be yours? And um, all the relevant agencies and bodies were asked, and they said no. And then they came back and asked us, by the way, while we're talking about this, have you Brits got any you know, huge triangular-shaped craft that you might be secretly operating over the U.S. and might have forgotten to ask us about it. And, <laughs> and as I've often said, this is interesting on, on several levels. Firstly, it, it you know, proves clearly that the U.S. government was aware of, of spectacular UFO sightings over the continental United States. But secondly, and far more importantly, I think, the public line of the U.S. government is we're not interested in this. We haven't looked at this since Blue Book was wound up in 1969. Well, if that's the case, you know, why were those questions being asked of us? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think we know when we look at cases like Rendlesham Forest or, or the Parviz Jafari's 
mid-air encounter with the UFO over the skies of Iran in 1976, where a report went back to the DIA, where a US colonel actually sat in on, on Avi's Jafari's debriefing. We, we know that, you know, whatever the public line, we know that people in the American government and military clearly do take this seriously still. But nonetheless, it's interesting to have that in black and white. Right. And then, uh, which I think is, is startling, especially for 1993, your assistant chief of air staff uh, said in summary that uh, this, there's evidence of uh, unidentified objects uh, operating over the UK. And yes. And again, as I've often said, that's, that's pretty much as close as the Ministry of Defense will ever get to saying whatever these things are, they're real and they're not ours. Mm-hmm. So, and all of that, I guess, and then along with some of the good cases, which we'll, I just want to ask you about real quick here. Um, that's what makes the the whole release a little frustrating is that you read about them and closing and justifying and their concerns for the media. In fact, one of their statements, I kind of felt like they were had you in mind when they're thinking of being accused of kind of being derelict in their in their duties. Um, but and then they go on to review some great cases. Um, well, yes, this, this is why um, the the media coverage of this file release looks a little bit, um, uh, you know, left hand, right hand. On the one hand, and, and bear in mind, of course, most of the media coverage is, is just taken straight from from the press release. So again, that's why I say the Ministry of Defence ended up believing its own no-defense-significance party line, but the media certainly continues to, most of the time, end up following that line. I mean, all, all these stories are just written up from the press release, and of course, the, the Ministry of Defense and the National Archives, it's not in their interests when writing up the press release to highlight cases where, where something's in our airspace, tracked on radar, and we don't know. Far better. Uh, and it's a clever and quite deliberate tactic to find these silly cases, or these rather amusing stories about uh, somebody who claims that their their tent and their dog were abducted by aliens while they're out camping. And, and of course, the media are just going to copy and paste it from the press release. Mm. So you know that, and that's a whole separate debate about uh, not media complicity, but certainly media um, laziness. Uh, you know, we want a Woodward and a Bernstein on this, but unfortunately, there aren't many of those around these days. Mm -hmm. and deadlines are so tight that that people can and do just copy and paste from the press release. But the good cases are out there. I mean, don't forget this latest batch of files is 4,400 pages. In total, the whole five-year program has involved over 50,000 pages. The good stuff's there, but don't expect MOD to point its finger at, at the, the really genuinely intriguing cases, because that's not in their interests. They want to point at the, the, the silly stories right. and the crazy stuff, and they want the media to run that. And nine times out of ten, that's exactly what happens. Right. But, but you know, uh, the best place to hide a book is in a library. The good stuff is in there. And, uh, well, the good stuff is in there, except for the stuff that isn't. Don't, don't let's forget. Plenty of material, by the MOD's own admission, has been inadvertently destroyed, has been lost, uh, and indeed, people like Stanton Friedman will be pleased to, to know that there are 
plenty of documents that are partially and in some cases totally blacked out, even in this public release. Mm -hmm. and, and again, it's a point worth making. Any information that is released is by definition unclassified. It was either always unclassified or it's been reviewed and whatever the original classification has now judged to be unclassified. So all this stuff that's coming out is only the stuff that is, is able to be released. And the UK's Freedom of Information Act has sweeping exemptions covering broad categories such as defense, national security, intelligence, uh, law enforcement, information passed in confidence by other countries, um, a whole raft of, of exemptions. So a whole lot of issues there for the UFO community to consider, perhaps. More files are out there somewhere. More files are out there. Um, some may be hidden away, some may be lost, some may have been passed to a private company under a defense contract to move things further away from congressional and FOI scrutiny and, and oversight and applicability, those, those sorts of issues. All right. And the last thing I want to talk about in relation to these uh, good files and in relation to what, like you said, there will be other groups still looking at this. Looking at uh, the files uh, and those police reports, uh, there's a really great report on one of those police helicopter sightings that was uh, reviewed by the Air Prox Board. And then also, unfortunately, the Sun attached this great sighting you all had out here recently to Scientology, and it kind of made a joke of it. But that was another case uh, recently that was investigated by the Air Prox Board. In both cases, the Air Prox Board uh, came to the conclusion that whatever this was was unidentified. But this seems to be this. These are really great cases because there's something that is investigated by a serious board. Yes, indeed, and that goes back to what I was saying about just avoiding using the phrase UFO if possible. Mm -hmm. And you're quite right. The UK Air Prox Board, and Air Prox, of course, stands for Air Proximity, um, is one of the places to look if you want to look now. You know, who does UFOs? Now the MOD's UFO project is no more. Um, part of the answer is the UK Aircrafts Board. Um, that's where the pilot sightings, where pilots or air traffic controllers who believe that there's been some possible danger of collision, uh, that's where those reports will go. Mm -hmm. But there may be other answers too. Uh, but yes, there have been a number of spectacular UFO encounters, if I can still call them that, that end up in the UK Aircrafts boards uh, remit and when those reports are bundled up and published I, I strongly recommend that journalists and UFO researchers interested in UFOs go over those with a fine tooth comb and, and look for those key phrases like unusual aircraft, unidentified helicopter, look for anything that's a UFO but isn't called a UFO. Mm -hmm. And in both of these cases, these were kind of lights. In one case in 2008, where lights kind of messing with a police helicopter. They even say that it, it was circling the helicopter, coming back to the helicopter. In the more recent case uh, in Sussex, uh, this was a light uh, that was seen by several, uh, three different um, pilots, I guess, coming in to land That's at correct. Gatwick Airport. Yeah. Um, 
and indeed that latter case involves radar evidence too. The right. former case, I don't believe, does. And, and of course, there are a number of theories about what we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. In some cases, with if it's just light, we may be dealing with, with people irresponsibly trying to fire lasers at um, pilots to blind them. Um, some people have done that as a sick prank, perhaps not realizing the danger. Others may do it for more sinister reasons. But uh, that's a big issue. Radio, small radio controlled aircraft, that, that's an issue too. Um, but some of these reports may be something else. So I, I think with all of these investigations that the UK aircrocs do, they go in with an open mind. They interview the pilots, they see what the radar evidence says, uh, they, and they do an investigation to see what other potential conventional explanations there might be, whether it's astronomical, meteorological, or having to do with some other form of, of airspace use, military or civil. All right. And I guess in your final word on this, it, it, does this set back ufology or the investigation of UFOs, you think, uh, the closing of the desk and the, the end of the UK files? Well, I think uh, it was sad. It, it, it is sad that the UFO project has, has been formally terminated after so many years of official research and investigation. I suspect for all sorts of reasons uh, that, that we've discussed, that it's it's just actually driven it underground and away from public scrutiny. And of course, that's a, a shame too. I wish that a balance could have been found, a way to filter the data more effectively to avoid getting uh, swamped in, in a situation where you spend so much of your time dealing with Freedom of Information Act requests and dealing with low quality UFO reports that are just aircraft lights or fire lanterns, that it takes the eye off the ball so to speak. So I, I would have liked to have found a way of focusing in on, on the really interesting and important cases and being a little bit more bullish with the rest and saying, you know what, we're not going to investigate that because it's an obvious uh, fire lantern. Or you know what, you know, this, this FOI request is, is um, spurious and, and we're just going to give it a standard response. So I, that's sad. On the other hand, I mean, it's a good thing that these files have now been declassified and released. Mm -hmm. It does give the UFO community and the media a resource, but I'm afraid people have got to work for it. As I say, there are well over 50,000 pages, and you have to look beyond the headlines in the media, which are just copied and pasted from the press release, and you have to look beyond the highlights guide. As I keep saying, the best place to hide a book is in a library, and the best material is in there. And if I can just finish with one example, which... Mm -hmm. Uh, just illustrates that the UFO project gets involved not just in UFOs, but like the real-life X-Files in anything weird and wonderful, alien abductions, crop circles, ghosts on military bases, etc. But in responding to a question about the technology behind UFOs, one document in this newly released batch revealed that MOD scientists were aware of, and this is a direct quote, anti-gravity and gravity modification research and were monitoring wow. developments, and, and this is a direct quote again, monitoring developments, quote, to assess whether such technologies could be of any benefit to defense in the future, unquote. Did you read that in any of the media coverage? No. Um, it's in the files, but it's been missed. And sad to say, there's a lot of similar stories. There's a lot of big stories out there in the files 
that have just been missed. Wow, that is a, that is very interesting. I'll have to go look for that. But um, thank you so much. I know you're really busy. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I greatly appreciate your efforts and your contribution, and so thank you for that. And uh, um, have, I'm sure you're gonna you have more interviews lined up. There are still one or two lined up, but uh, the initial firestorm uh, has has pretty much died down now. There's an old saying: today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish and chip paper. And I think <laughs> right. we're we're now entering that that world. All right. So fish and chip, your face is uh, going to be seen when they're picking up their chips. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for, to Nick Pope for uh, doing this interview with us. I know he's super busy, and he is the guy of the moment. So that was really cool and, and really insightful. And it was interesting to hear that, like us, he's a little disappointed in uh, the MOD and the way they approach this and that they're closing uh, their desks. So that that's unfortunate. And I'm really excited because next weekend I'll be in North Carolina with Leslie Kane and some of those people we talked about. Um, so I'll be with the, the French guy and the <clears throat> Chilean guy who have, <clears throat> excuse me, their own UFO official uh, organizations rolling. And uh, with the progress they've made, you know, you'd hope things would go that way where more governments would be open to investigations, not closing their investigations. Most unfortunate. Uh, however, you can go to our website, and we've got a story on the UK files, and it, it'll show you where you can go download them. Um, also, we review some of the top stories in those files, including those police helicopter stories that I talked to Nick about. So go check that out on the website. You'll also find on the website, this is really cool. We got an interview with Mark D'Antonio about Doug Trumbull. And Doug Trumbull is like a special effects guru. He did special effects for 2001, Blade Runner, um, uh, Close Encounters, all like friggin' sweet movies and incredible special effects. I mean, he's just an absolute legend. And he's doing this movie called UFO Talk about this UFO project that he is putting together where he wants to go out and film UFOs. He's got this amazing equipment. So you can go to our website and see a lot more about that. And I interview Mark D'Antonio because Mark D'Antonio is like Trumbull's buddy. And he works on these projects with Trumbull um, in uh, uh, lots of the details. So really cool stuff. So you can see our interview with Mark on that. Also, this week we will have up another spacing out. So check out our YouTube for that as well. So there'll be Jason and Maureen will be going over more UFO news this week. And as for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be pretty busy. So I'm going to be in North Carolina for this conference. Uh, a week after that, Antonio speaking in Roswell, and so I've got to schlep him out there. And uh, Jason is coming along. Uh, this will be his first trip to Roswell uh, during the. The, the whole crash festival type of thing. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But I'm not sure if we'll have shows during the next couple of weeks. If we do, they might not be on Monday. So we're going to have to kind of play that by ear for the next couple of weeks just to warn you up front because I know you guys kind of freak out when you don't see a podcast, which is appreciated because it's very, very appreciated that you guys listen and enjoy the show. And uh, thank you very, 
Very much. And thank you also to the people who have donated the music for the show. So thank you to Caleb Hanks for the opening music and Two Earth Minutes for the close music, which you're just about to hear because we are done. Thank you all so much for listening. And we will talk to you in the next week or two or three. Adios, muchachos. 